morning. This is Jean Abshire with the International Power Hour. I am here with my colleague and co-host Cliff Staten, and we have with us today Kelsey Timmerman, the author of Where Am I Wearing? Kelsey, welcome. Thanks welcome for having me. Thanks. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, you are speaking on campus for our listeners who are actually pre-recording this <laughs> in, the, in the interest of full disclosure. Um, but you'll be speaking on campus this evening about, um, about your book, Where Am I Wearing? Um, so why don't you um, tell us a little bit about how you decided to explore the world to learn more about the places where your clothing was manufactured? So it's kind of a gradual process. Um, you know, I studied anthropology in college and kind this of... This at Miami? Miami, yep, mm -hmm. Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Not the sunny, warm yes. Miami. Um, <laughs> the other one. <laughs> yeah, the other one. That was a school before Florida was even a state. That's, That's kind right. of our argument, right? <laughs> um, so I kind of uh, had my curiosity inspired in college, and I wanted to go and see some of the places I was uh, studying, learning about, the, the, the different cultures, interacting with different... So I come from very small town in Ohio where everyone's kind of the same, not much diversity of the people or the landscape. So I set off on a, uh, on a trip and I saved up money. I went on the trip and not with an intent to write a book. It was just to go explore. I went to Australia, Thailand, Nepal, zipped through Europe because Europe's really expensive. And then I got back, got a job as a scuba instructor, started to write about some of my travels. And I thought that was a pretty fun way to share these experiences with other people. But it was more about me having adventures off in the world. And then I knew I could go anywhere in the world and have adventures that would be worth writing about. So I thought, what if I just went wherever my favorite t-shirt was made and have adventures there? And that's I thought it was your underwear. Well, and it was the, <laughs> the underwear always get the glory because they're oh, yeah. ridiculous, <laughs> right? But it was a t-shirt that said, come with me to my tropical paradise. It was a tattoo from the show uh, Fantasy Island. Yes. And there's a movie on HBO now called uh, Dinner with Hervé. It's about Hervé Villachez. Oh, my oh goodness. Gosh. I just recorded it. I want to watch it. But uh, So I went to Honduras to have adventures and kind of explore. And I went to, uh, you know, the jungle. had a near-death snake experience oh interaction. Taught an island village to play a game of baseball, which is really hard when you don't speak the language. Like, all of a sudden, people are, like, throwing the the ball at, at people's heads and they think that's an out and I'm not sure how to explain that that's not right. So that's what I, that's what I was doing and then uh, I decided I should at least go to the factory where my shirt was made and that's kind of when it got real. It's kind of yeah. when it got more serious sure. and I met a young man named Emil Carr who's kind of my, my same age and that's kind of led to this deeper dive into well who does make our clothes and what are their lives like. So did you write much in at Miami and in terms of the, tell me the process of you know, some people, you have to work writing. Did this come natural, or did you get some help, or? I, I always had, uh, I guess, some aptitude where, to the point where, I, you know, it's one of those things where even when I didn't know, like, what I was talking about on a test, if it was about, right. you know, write your, write your answer, I sure. could usually get a pretty good score because I was somewhat decent Good at, at writing, writing. Yes. and I had a, a college professor told me hey you should think about writing and it was okay. kind of maybe planted in the back of my head but then right. it's like well how do you actually how do you, how do you go about doing do this and yeah so for me uh, I um, got back from that first six months trip uh, and I started to write uh, I pitched a travel column to a local paper in Key West Florida where I was working as a oh, scuba that's instructor right. okay and it's it was a weekly column so I wrote like probably 60 to 70 columns and that's kind of where where I really learned to write that was where yeah. I think writing is something that you only get better at by doing it that's exactly and, right and you have sure. to at least I have to have that reason to do it yes. like someone waiting um waiting for a manuscript yeah, or yeah article or a weekly column that <laughs> a makes weekly you, column yeah even though I was getting paid zero dollars to write this <laughs> weekly column like the audience demanded me to <laughs> sort of like radio yeah. <laughs> Um, so, if I recall correctly, um, you you mentioned that this Honduran um, uh, t-shirt factory. If I'm remembering correctly, you didn't get a super warm reception when you showed up at the door, right? No, and I don't blame them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I just <laughs> randomly showed up. Who is like this stranger knocking on our door, wanting in to? Yeah. And take I'm like, a peek. like this shirt. It was made here. Can I have a tour? <laughs> And they're like, who are you? And like, where did you come from? Because I literally just got dropped off the side of the road in front of this factory and asked if I could have a tour of the factory. Like, no business would let you do that, even here, you know? So, but yeah, I did wait to the side of the factory. I wasn't going to get in, and there I met uh, the workers. Some and workers. you were a bit hesitant even to 
interview and talk to the workers at first, correct? Yeah, I mean, just think if you're listening right now and your shirt was definitely probably not made in the United States and you can meet the person who made your shirt, like what would you say to them? And it got really awkward really fast for uh -huh. me because I never thought it through yeah. that far. And all of a sudden, like here I am face to face with a guy my same age, very different life experiences and life opportunities. And I think for the first time in my life, I started to see the privilege of my own life, my own opportunities. And uh, that becomes really uncomfortable when we start to look at ourselves through the eyes of the rest of the world. Sure. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. So what sort of challenges do, did you face in trying to track down the exact or comparable manufacturers of all your clothing? And, and which countries did you visit in that process? Yep. So I went to Honduras for my t-shirt, uh, Bangladesh for my underwear, my <laughs> Jingle These Christmas Boxers, yes. which everybody... <laughs> Loves. Um, my all-American Levi's blue jeans were made in Cambodia. My flip-flops were made in China. A pair of shoes that were made in Ethiopia. Um, so in terms of challenges, um, you know, in, in Bangladesh, um, everyone thought I was there to do business so I could get into the factories. I had to translate or lie to everyone and say that I, it was his idea to lie. And I just kind of went along with it that they thought I was there to buy a bunch of underwear and I could easily get into the factories. Looking, and that, looking back, do you feel a bit uncomfortable doing that? Yeah, I do, but also I think that I got into some places I would not have gotten into. Sure. Yeah. So I did sure. not feel comfortable doing it. So then I decided that maybe I should try to work through the, the brands, right? So like Levi's in Cambodia was really helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no such thing as a Levi's factory, but Levi's right. buys a lot of jeans from factories. So if Levi's says, hey, this dude from Indiana showed up, like, could you give him a tour of the factory? They're like, yeah. And so they were happy to see yeah. me. Um, other companies in, in, in China, um, the uh, Deckers Apparel, which does Simples and Uggs and Tevas, uh, they were not happy. Someone at their company gave me the information for where the factory was located. Mm -hmm. I went to that factory, and then I had like the vice president of global sourcing that was like not hap not nice to me, mm -hmm. uh, a guy named Pat, um, and he uh, he was yelling at me quite a bit and it's funny so since then i've met people who were at that company then uh -huh. and they remember when that oh, wow. happened which was oh, pretty yes. you're, you're the guy that showed up <laughs> and pat's head was exploding and but now they actually have you some, must have gotten a pretty good yelling yeah. it. now they actually have someone who's uh in uh, in the position of corporate social responsibility and they did not have that then i'm not yeah. saying that it's because of me uh, most of these companies are progressing now on these issues yeah. but which is yeah. a positive sign. Yeah, it's been really positive. Yeah. yeah, I think it gets tricky from what I uh, was given to understand when I was in, in Vietnam asking some questions that you have the, the contractors who, you know, may follow the corporate social responsibility, um, you know, policies, but then there's the subcontractors and the sub-subcontractors and things may get a little looser with some of those, is yeah. that is that still the case, or have you found that? Yeah, for sure, I feel like there's a lot of please lie to me, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. please yeah. tell me that you hit these certain standards and that the products are being made at your factory, and uh, then even though those could be outsourced to a smaller factory that does not adhere to those standards, uh, even inspectors when they come in. Uh, are often like there's a set of books for them to look at like let's hide the child labor let's you know everyone talk nice to the inspectors and yeah. it's there often there's known visits mm -hmm. uh, so the last I had looked like there's a big difference between Target and Walmart like Walmart did not have um, they when people were going to look at the Walmart factories, the factories from which Walmart sources they would they knew ahead of time they were coming but like the tar targets they did not know yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously easier to perform well if you have a, if you know when someone's a set coming. schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, we are, I neglected to mention earlier that we're also joined um, on air today uh, by our intern, our awesome, awesome intern, Coco Wu. Um, so Coco's also going to be in here asking questions. Yes, I do have a question. So um, how willing were the workers willing to talk to you? How did you communicate with them? Do they always speak? I mean, English, I don't think so. No, you know, one of the many privileges that I benefited from is that English is kind of the world's second language. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, if I was, uh, I, I mean, I only speak English. I speak a little bit of Spanish. But if I, my, my one language I spoke was Spanish, like, there would be nowhere in my wearing. Because it yeah. would have been really hard to find a translator to translate from Spanish to Bangla, right? Yeah. I just wouldn't have happened. So, yeah, I mean, 
I talked to people who would talk to me. So there was plenty of, of people who worked in government factories who would see me and like, oh, I'm out of here, you know? Yeah. Um, and at first I was just talking to people just right outside the factory gates. And I don't think that was the best method, right? Because people inside the factory could see that they were talking to me, who is that guy or whatever. Um, it was a threat to them. Could yeah, be. it could be, sure. yeah. right? Um, so I started to like I have my translator like talk to people and kind of say, "Hey, there's this guy Somebody around the corner." Somebody blend a little bit better. I was like, <laughs> "Do you want to buy a watch and tell me about your job?" You know, and so uh, he would bring them over, and I would have a discussion with them. And there was plenty of folks who just didn't want to talk to me either. Um, and then so there's some people who were over time, um, the course of a couple of days or weeks, like forming a relationship with them that they were would open up more and more kind of share what but I think to so they come back and talk to you like a little bit day after day kind of thing or yeah I would just keep walk visiting. by you every day on the I would sidewalk keep visiting. Like, oh, there's that guy again you know I would show up and visit mm -hmm. and see how things were going but I, you know all of them and pretty much in all the work that I do people are like why would you want to talk with me I'm just a garment worker at an underwear factory in Bangladesh I'm just a shoemaker in China and what I've found is that once you show that you're genuinely curious about another person, mm -hmm. well, that's a person in our own community or, or, or around the world, that people will really open up. Um, and so, yes, I always had translators, too. Um, I've gone to a lot of campuses ar around the world, and I think it's a great place to go and to um, visit the English department and usually a professor or a student or students will go off with me and to, on this journey mm. to ask questions and, and you know often they have never thought about this either even though it's in their own community right. they're every day they're going to school they're passing the garment factories and they haven't always thought about well I wonder what life like life is like for these folks which I thought was pretty um, amazing yeah Take is there a go-to question you always ask them first up to kind of warm them up and get them to start talking? Oh boy, I don't, uh, I don't even really have it. You know, I'm I'm not a, a going in with a list of questions type of guy. You know, I'm just having conversations, and um, one of the one of the things I have often is a lot of time to. You know, to to start. So I I'm then I'm definitely not going in there with a really like, hey, uh, what are the working conditions in your factory, and what do you get paid, and you know, just like asking them. If that comes you, out in the conversation, though. Yeah, I mean, I eventually, right. as we get, get comfortable, get to know with each other, yeah. mm -hmm. then I will ask those harder questions. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of sharing about me too. Mm -hmm. uh, to to I think that it's a, a it's a give and take. Um, so, um, you know, they'll often have a lot of questions for me, like, you know, why, why are you here? <laughs> like, that's a really good question <laughs> that care? they have. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think that it's, I, I don't really have a, a go-to first question. Uh, I just start up a conversation and just show that I'm genuinely curious uh, about them. And in the book, uh, we're reading the book on campus with the Common Experience Program, but you actually visited the homes of some of these folks. Yeah. Could you talk maybe about one or two of those homes you visited? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll share a story of uh, Arifa in uh, uh, Bangladesh yeah. uh, in Dhaka. She was kind of the first person I really started to take this seriously. Like, um, uh, you know, I had the experience with the meal cart in Honduras, and then I went to Bangladesh, and I left the airport in Dayton, Ohio, and the next place I was was Dhaka, Bangladesh, and that oh, was wow. like <clears throat> shocking, right? Yes. And um, so I met her, and uh, kind of did this mass interview of workers that live in this apartment building. We we're all in one room, mm -hmm. and and she kind of always answered and was speaking for the group. And I thought this was not what I expected in like a female Bangladeshi garment worker. Yeah. And so I asked, like, can I follow you around? Which is kind of creepy, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, she... Maybe your translator made it sound a little yeah, nicer. Right. I was like, what time do you wake up in the morning? Because I will be there. And I did. I showed up at like 5 in the morning. Yeah. One, you know, I she knew that. I was coming. I was like, whoa. She knew, yes. she knew I was coming. It wasn't like she opened her oh eyes and I'm like hovering over her like <laughs> writing in my notebook. But I did think when I read that, I was like, dog. Yeah. <laughs> like, that would probably creep me out. Yeah. So she was a single mom of three children. She lived in an apartment uh, building and and she earned $24 per month, and rice cost $15 to feed a family of four. Yeah. Uh, so it was tough uh, for her. Uh, I also visited some of the villages where people, this is like a pretty 
you know, recent journey for most folks. They yeah. are leaving the farms in the right. in the countryside for leaving the fields for the factories, and um, so they still have like their parents, um, and also have siblings back in the villages. So in Cambodia, I made an effort to go off into the villages and to meet uh, their families. And uh, so one day I traveled with two young women, Nari and I, and we Nari I is her name A I. Uh, and so we went uh, with taxi to, to their villages to see their families. And I actually saw them again this uh, past year. Oh, uh, so last, I guess a year ago, June, I tracked Nari and I. And yeah. neither one of them are working in the garment um, industry oh, okay. any longer. Um, yeah. And so Nari is back in the, the village and she's working on a rubber plantation. And she's got two young children. And she's a very tired young mom, as young yeah, parents sure. are, right? Yeah, like, yeah. lots of juggle. Was this, was this voluntary? They decided to leave the garment factory, or? Yeah, so, you know, the financial crisis happened, right. and we stopped buying so much stuff. Right. And millions of workers around the okay. world lost their jobs. I, I don't, you know, I hope people don't walk away with that statement and say, like, our job was to consume and buy a bunch of stuff to give these people jobs, because... It's more than that. These jobs should be genuine opportunities for folks, but millions well, of people. We're also not buying all our clothes to be, you know, helpful to other people. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, so millions of people lost their jobs, and uh, they uh, lost a job at a factory, got a job at another factory where they were experiencing mass faintings. I never even knew that was a thing. Mass faintings. Mass wow. faintings, like many, many people in the factory, all that Kind Does this of have to do with something in the air in the factory, or who I knows? have no who idea. Knows? Okay, <laughs> I have. Uh, that sounds not right, though. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if it was like a like a hysteria that spread throughout. Everyone was panicked, or like I have no idea what led to the mass fainting. And so they left, and uh, I um, is now uh, still working in like the hotel industry in Phnom Penh as like a um, like cleaning and stuff. Mm -hmm. So is that, um, so one, one's working on a rubber plantation back in a village and one's um, in the city still, but in a different context. So how do their, how do their lives compare with, with when they were garment workers? I mean, do, is, are these better situations for them in terms of being able to, you know, have a, a reliable, you know, couple of meals every day? decent roof over their heads um is how does it compare yeah there's this thought that the garment industry is like this first rung of the global economic ladder mm. um i think that rung or, might be a false rung right. i think it might they reach for it and it's not necessarily there i don't think their lives are better for having worked in the garment industry um i is in the town in the city now there are more opportunities in the city mm -hmm. so um nari back in the village i think looks back on her time as a 20 something a, a garment worker living with seven of her friends as kind of like the glory days, like her time in college uh, where she had more freedom. She didn't mm -hmm. have the demands of family and kids. And, yeah. uh, you know, so um, I think she kind of looks back a little bit like those were the good old days. Yeah. Uh, remember when we went bowling, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but she is with her family now. She is with her family. That, I yeah. guess that. Yeah, one advantage. I yeah, suppose. I mean, yeah, she's with her with her family, and uh, I'm Facebook friends with her husband now, oh, and nice. just kind of <laughs> keep in touch a little bit there. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's the this new economy that is spreading to places like that, to villages, and pulling people from villages yeah. and cities. It definitely does threaten cultural connections and yes. family connections. Yeah. So going back to the this the situation of the um, woman in Bangladesh who was making fifteen dollars a month. Sorry, $24 a month, and it costs 15 just for the rice for her family. Um, obviously, the remaining $9 isn't much. I assume she had to pay rent on her space, um, plus things to go on the rice and other, and other things. Was she, was that, um, and, and this kind of goes back to the question of is this, a, is this actually a rung up? You know, was she able to provide any help, do you know, to Send like family left in the village or? Huh. Not that I was aware of. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was, all of her resources went back into her kids. So she had yeah. other income. Uh, she had, uh, she did uh, have some responsibilities at the apartment complex. Mm -hmm. So she kind of like managed right. her floor a little bit. So she yeah. got some income from that. Her eldest son, Arman, uh, went to Saudi Arabia to work to earn money to help send home mm -hmm. to support his mother. Um, so I think that's how she was able to make ends yeah. meet somewhat. So also not, not a pathway up. Yeah. Um, I think it is about time to take a break. I'm getting the signal here. <laughs> so the International Power Hour will be right back. 
Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten, as well as our intern Coco Wu and our guest Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Wearing? Um, we have been talking about his travels to explore um, various places, various factories, various um, you know opportunities that workers have for um, who manufactured his clothing. Um, so, Kelsey, what were the, the biggest positive and negative surprises that you encountered during your travels for this book? Um, hmm. uh, wow, that's a really good question. The biggest positive... Um, I'm assuming there were... There were I'm assuming. <laughs> the question does is loaded with assumptions. Yeah, you know, I think there's this idea when we... People who are um, living in poverty, whether even our own communities around the world, so often they get painted as like two-dimensional mm -hmm. characters that should be pitied, right? And I think that this really taught me just like how, uh, I mean, it sounds silly to say there are people just like the rest of us, like with hopes and dreams sure. and personalities and strengths and, and relatives that they're proud of and relatives they're ashamed of and drunk uncles and all that kind of stuff. The universal phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's one of the things that was really, it was important to me to get through in, in the book. And that's why I like to just not touch on like, well, here's this person's income. And here's this, like to show like yeah. their personality. Um, so you, we can connect with them because I felt like I could connect with them. And because yeah. you can connect with any person if you sit down and have a chat and find some commonalities. And so well, I think that, that was my biggest positive that, and, and hoping to just how to, to, to be able to kind of come become friends with yeah. the people who made my clothes. I mean, you just mentioned the, that you're now Facebook friends with the, with the husband of one of them. So, um, on that two-dimensionality, I think it's it's easy to sit here and you know look at news reports and look at pictures and and you know think just oh poor and downtrodden, but how horrible um, things are. Yeah, in in my experiences, and I'm wondering if if you found this as well. Um, I have found, you know, not just that they're real people just like us, but also that you know, just amazingly um, entrepreneurial and creative and just I mean doing sometimes really incredible things and empowered, yeah. not just downtrodden, but people, you know, again, doing things and sometimes really empowered. I see often such a great, like, strength. Like, I, I've met plenty of people who, if I think about, if I were in their situation, if I had their life experiences and upbringing, like, there's no way I would be as successful as they are. Like, I don't know how I would have survived, right? And so to see the things that they have overcome and are still like yeah. laughing and joking, not all, I mean, not all the time. I don't want to paint the picture that things are just hunky dory and easy for folks because they're not. I mean, they have, you know, uh, you know I, I was recently in Zambia um, or last year researching my new book, Where Am I Giving? And I, I met people whose kids don't go to school because they can't afford the $6 annual school fee. Yeah. You know? And uh, so it is okay, definitely, well. it is definitely tough. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a venti rather than a tall, right? For but us. I think, I think <laughs> any of us that travel a lot have that s very similar experience. Yeah. Years ago, when I was in Managua, Nicaragua, there's a community that lives right on, right on Lake Managua there and right on the dump. And they literally make a living from getting things out of the dump. Yep making shoes out of old tires and, and then selling them uh, on the corners and stuff. So people become very creative and yet happy, laughing um, in, when I look at it, you know, very dire situation, but they were, they were being very creative in that sense to, yeah. in order to survive. I think so often we look at situations like that and think that, and it's like, I find myself finding this too, is like, oh, I think this is what would help them. This is, this is what they need. And like think that we're the ones that have something to teach. And maybe in some cases that's true. But so often I'm like, we're the ones that should learn too, right? Like there's a lot to be learn from people who live in different situations than us. And to the savior syndrome is pretty common. Like, well, oh, before we us, develop an aid program, we should ask them what they need as opposed to us telling them what they need. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the locals helping locals. It's always the, the ones that are the most successful and lasting. That's yeah. the programs that, that work. Yeah. Well, yeah. well um, going back to my, the, the other half of my earlier question, what was the biggest negative that, that you found that was a surprise? 
Biggest thing of it was a surprise. Um, so one of the places I went was a dump in Cambodia. So I had, I think if, if you get off the beaten path in some developing countries, you can yeah. find dumps where all the city's trash goes. Sure. And yeah. inevitably there'll be people that, that work as trash pickers there and yeah. find something of value to uh, recycle or yeah. resell. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was one of the most uh, hopeless places I had been, you know? Um, just to, I was there as they were digging through the trash and there's this burning, like these fires just start spontaneously and they're burning this trash all the time, spilling out this like acrid, just horrible smoke. And uh, just to see the, what people were doing and where they were doing it and just to see the look in the adults' eyes and then to, to see some kids that were working there too. Um, and the kids, it seemed to be like they weren't quite beaten down by those realities yet, but some of the adults' eyes, like I never... You know, uh, I hope to never see that look again, where it's just uh, like a vacancy of hope. You know, um, yeah. so yeah, I think that's one of the things that I, I never really witnessed um, extreme poverty yeah. before. That degree where yeah. you're living out of the dump is—it's, I mean, it's shocking. Even if you know it exists, to actually see it is. It's one thing to read about it; it's another to witness right. it firsthand. Yes, yeah. you know, I was yeah. for, for where am I giving? I tracked down. Uh, Gandhi's great-grandson, Tushar, and he was telling me about, like, corporate givings being demanded now uh, in India. It's like they have to, based on how much money their profits are, they have to give so much. And he's like, and these are people who have never uh, shaken the hand of poverty, who have never mm. smelled poverty. And, like, they, they just haven't experienced what that is like, and yet they're making decisions about what how to help people, right? Yeah. I feel like we have to, proximity matters. Uh, yes. If we're trying to help people that we've never stood alongside, we're doing it wrong, you know? It's a powerful thought, yeah. Um, so are there um, like lifestyle changing things that you encounter? Like are there places that now you just won't buy clothing from or, or other things that, that really you changed how you live as a result of? Yeah. Of where am I wearing? I mean, I was always a pretty crummy consumer. I don't really care about clothes a whole lot. I have, like, you know, just a lot of really old old clothes, <laughs> I guess. But I think, if anything, um, all these experiences I've had, whether it's where am I wearing, where am I eating, where am I giving, they've, uh, you know, there's this awareness and there's this uh, heaviness that can come with that awareness. But there's also the awareness of what you can do and what choices you can make and what brands are doing it right. And so I feel like there's been a greater connection and, and not that shopping ever really has brought enjoyment to my life, but to buy shoes made in a living wage from a living wage factory in Ethiopia, like you feel something more positive about that. Like I, I actually going to ask, I was actually going to ask you about that, that particular factory, why it was so different than yeah. the others. Yeah. So they, I mean, they paid a living wage. They, um, sent the workers, kids to school, um, I met a guy who, his, they sent his uh, nieces and nephews to school. He didn't have any kids of his own. They sent his nieces and nephews. So they had health care benefits. They had more rights for women workers than many women workers have in the United States. Uh, and it was like a, a job, a genuine opportunity that paid people enough to send their kids to school. It literally paid for their kids to go to school. Like that can change a family's tree, right, for generations. Sure. Yeah. And so wearing a pair of shoes like that, incorporating a pair of shoes like that, it, like then I can get some enjoyment out of consumption, you know. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean every every and the way that I consume the smallest ways like that our lives have changed. Uh, I say our like my family, my wife Annie and our two kids Harper and Griffin, uh, just kind of being forced into this a little bit, I guess. But um, you know the discussions that we have at, at dinner. Um, we, there for a while with Harper, we would check her pajamas every night to see where they're from and have a discussion about that. And okay. you know hmm. I probably tried a little too early because I'd be like, hey, these are from. Uh, Bangladesh and daddy went to Bangladesh and she would just make some poop joke you know what I mean so like hey, we should wait a couple years but that's okay <laughs> um so going back to like corporate social responsibility <clears throat> what kind of programs do you see or what kind of role do you see factories can um do to help maybe increase more programs I think I know Patagonia they have a kind of like an ecosystem where they have dorms 
um, for the workers, and they have like nursing care, uh, like child care for the kids and school. What else other programs do you see could yeah. be added? So there's actually a lot of hope in this area. In the last uh, 10 years, this has improved a lot. And one of the big tipping points was when the factory in Bangladesh collapsed. Yeah. And they killed 1,133 people and injured thousands more. And that was a wake-up call. So you got to look at the different stakeholders. The factories are one, right? Then you have the brands. Uh, I mean, there's no Patagonia factory, just as there's no Levi's factory. There's factories that produce clothes for Patagonia. Um, so what factories do they choose to work with, and what kind of relationship do they work out? Um, I think it can vary by the, by the brand and by the factory. There was no such thing as a fair trade apparel, pretty much, uh, fair trade certified apparel. Uh, 10 years ago. Now, in the wake of the factory collapse, like Patagonia has hundreds of items. I think you can go to Target now, and Athleta, or Athleta, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, they even have fair trade. I mean, there's fair trade underwear, there's fair trade shoes, there's fair trade socks, there's, there's uh, you know, there's much more now. So I, um, so I think fair trade is one of, one of the answers to that. Um, the industry kind of came together after the factory collapse in Bangladesh and brought in workers' rights uh, yeah. organizations and, and architects and engineers and uh, went through and made sure that all the other factories and closed the factories or brought them up to standards so they wouldn't collapse. Uh, so that, I mean, had a genuine impact on people's lives because there had been a history. It wasn't the first factory collapse in Bangladesh, right? But, you know, it's hopefully one of the last because so, of... So ultimately the political system did respond to that in that sense. Yeah, not just the political, but just the political, you know, op opinion, like the brands and consumers. Uh, there's a uh, movement called Fair Trade, no, Fair, what's it called? Uh, oh, it happens on the anniversary of the factory collapse in Bangladesh. Mm. Um, they, they have a check your tag campaign, and I can't remember the name of it. I shouldn't remember the name of it. I don't. Um, so that, you know, there's been all these different responses uh, to that stuff happening, and I think it's all played a part, whether it's brands. Like Patagonia was a very early leader, they had something called the Footprint Chronicles where you could actually trace your item of clothing. This is back before they even had fair trade, you know, certified factories. Um, and so, you know, they, in their catalogs, had a product of, and it would say where it was made. And mm -hmm. that's just something that really didn't exist. It would say made in USA or it would say imported in some catalogs. Um, so the companies like Patagonia, I think, have really led the way on this. Uh, I think that there's probably still a lot of room for growth, uh, but it's becoming, whether it's consumers or brands or pol policies or factories, it's all together, I think, that needs to happen. So why should Americans care about this? I mean, you know, if our clothes are cute and affordable, what does it matter? I mean, you know, at least people have some income, maybe sweatshop income is better than no income. I mean, you hear those arguments. So why would you, what would you say about people? Why should people should care? Yeah, uh, try to get me fired up. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I or think you hear the argument, I won't buy anything from, quote, sweatshop labor. Oh. You yeah. Know, you get, yeah. You hear both sides, yeah. right? Yeah. Anyway, but yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. That's the harder I think, one, I think. I think that people should care because the people making our clothes are mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, and aunts and uncles, and um, face life's challenges just like the rest of us. They're people that just want what's best for their kids. And... Um, sometimes they're abused and exploited, and um, and we're directly connected to, connected to them, very tangible way, every single day. Ninety-seven percent of our clothes come from somewhere else, and if we just simply looked at the labels on our clothes and thought that, wow, actually, hands of a mother or a father somewhere around the world like put this together, earning money to feed their children or hopefully to send them to school, I think we care. There's a great example of. Um, a guy ordered an iPhone, and, and this was in England, and he was excited and tracking it. Like, oh, where's my iPhone now? It's in this part of the world. Oh, it finally got to him. He opened it up, and in his photos, there was already a photo, and it was se several photos of uh, a worker in the The people the that had as assembled, assembled yeah. it. And she had a little crooked, she had a crooked hat on and was given, like, the piece, or I think <laughs> victory sign, maybe. Uh, and, like... And so he posted it online, and all it kind of went viral, and everyone wanted to know. Everyone wanted to know who's iPhone girl, where she, where she from. Yeah. And I, I think what it, that proves is that when we see that there is actually a person, there is an iPhone girl, uh, we actually care about that person. So um, 
if we just think that these products appear magically on a shelf, like then we don't, right? But I think that awareness is is important. I would agree. Um, it looks like it's about time for another break, so um, we will go ahead and do that. So the International Power Hour will be right back. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten, our intern Coco Wu, and our guest for this hour, Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Wearing, which we've been talking about, but he's also the author of two other books, um, including one about food, Where Am I Eating? So let's let's turn to that one next. I, How I did love you food. move from clothes <laughs> to food? Yeah, actually, it doesn't sound logical, but it, I felt like it really, really was. I feel like in many ways it's a prequel to where am I wearing in the in terms of the lives of the people I was meeting because you know people had left the farms for the factories let uh, people had left the farms to go work in the dump so which to see the lives and lifestyles of the uh, the factories and then to visit the countryside and see people there you're like why did you make this decision so I wanted to kind of explore like what's happening back on the farm that people are leaving that farm uh, and coming to work in these factories. So I followed my Starbucks coffee to Columbia, where I met um, uh, Starbucks farmers who, even though they were included in Starbucks' social responsibility program, they had never actually ever heard of Starbucks, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. That's interesting. Uh, I followed my Dole banana to Costa Rica. Uh, I followed my bar of chocolate to Ivory Coast in West Africa, uh, apple juice to China, and I went and met the folks, kind of similar to where my wearing interact with them, uh, when possible, farmed alongside them, got to know a little bit of what their work was like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so that ended up being, where am I eating? So you picked oh. coffee beans? I did. I, I did too. I've done that. It's, it's tough work, actually. Yeah, I'm not a very skilled <laughs> coffee bean picker. Like, you know, and it was a bit of a spectacle. Like, I wanted to do it, but it really wasn't quite the season yet. It was close. Um. And so there were some people picking out there, but then... Uh, you know, I'm out there trying to, like, for an hour, and I barely have any beans right. in my, or cherries in my bucket, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of, like, laughing at me. Yeah. Trying not to fall off the steep volcanic, <laughs> like, hillside, right? I'm, like, totally molesting these trees. I'm, like, you know, yes. hanging on Holding for on dear for life. life. And, like, cause that would be a stupid way to die, but... Yeah. But also the reality of, of uh, you know, the life of the workers there, although I'm sure they're more accustomed to working in that environment. But, but that does highlight that, you know, some of these farm situations, like people can be working in physically precarious conditions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, uh, people that work on banana farms, um, they're exposed to the elements and venomous snakes and um, pesticides and herbicides. And, yeah. um, and there's been lawsuits that, uh, workers have a, very few, but like workers actually have won cases against American companies for um, d different diseases or they've become sterile because of the. It used to be that people would work in the banana, and this was described to me as the glory days when you actually earned enough money to pay your family, to pay, pay for your kids to go to school and their books and stuff, where you would be working out in the banana plantation and the planes would fly directly over the workers mm. and dump their chemical payloads directly on top of them. Yep. That was when they got paid more. Now the margins are smaller and they're making less money. Um, so yeah, I mean... I met a, a young man who uh, was by all definitions a slave on a cocoa farm in Ivory Coast. If you've heard about the cocoa industry in um, uh, West Africa, you've heard a lot about child slave labor, mm -hmm. and that gets all the attention, and that's like 0.5% of kids um, working on a cocoa farm work for a non-family member. The reality is that 99.5% of kids work for, and there's not even like schools, they work for their own, they work for, work for their family. So. Yeah. Uh, but yet we just laser focused in on uh, child slave labor because we don't want that guilt as we're eating our chocolate. But often we don't have this conversation of what are these farmers getting paid? You know, there's hundreds of thousands of forced adult laborers, but we don't talk about that. So even sometimes our, our disdain uh, is directed in the wrong fashion to actually make a positive difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about apple juice in China? What was, what was that like? Yeah, so back to China. I was there for shoes, and then I went back for <laughs> apple juice. And so if you if you go to the the um, you know village pantry or whatever the gas station and, and pull out a uh, an apple juice, single serving apple juice, it'll say may contain apples from up to seven different countries located on four different continents. 
But for the most part, apple juice concentrate since like the late 90s comes from China. So two thirds of the apple juice on American shelves comes from China. And I'm actually, if I might toss something else in here, like we use apple juice as a sweetener in a lot of yes, other different do. products. So it's not probably just the apple juice from China that you're drinking. It's, you know, all the other things that, you know, we want a natural sweetener in. You know, there's a, there's a lot of apple juice that gets around. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I met, I met an apple farmer there named Mr. Fung, and his uh, life had drastically become better. Like he had sent his kids to college. Wow. Great. He was earning about 30 grand a year. And the government decided that they were going to laser focus on this region. This is going to be their apple farming region. They built an apple convention center, an apple museum, uh, all these, you know, for apple tourists. But there was no, I was the only apple tourist, right? <laughs> and to the point where the uh, police actually came to my hotel and took my translator to the police station. And I'm like, what is he doing here? You know? <laughs> And another translator that lied for me, he's like, oh, he's a professor, you know. Like, <laughs> so it always makes me nervous in China, like traveling around, and you don't know, like asking lots of questions and things like that. That's not the best. But um, his life had, you know, uh, while his life had gotten better, farmers that were selling in the United States into for apple juice, uh, you know, some of them had bulldozed their farms down, mm. right? Uh, so that's kind of the opposite uh, end of it. Now on yeah. the apple plantations I saw, there was no other living thing other than the apple tree. There was not grass, there was not a weed, there was wow. so like obvious lot of usage of, of like chemicals. pesticides, yeah. And or herbicides, yeah. yeah. Dr. Oz, I feel like personally Dr. Oz is a little bit out there uh, on many things, but he had a whole show about uh, high levels of, of arsenic and apple juice, right. and higher than what we allow for things that we drink. And there was high levels of inorganic arsenic in apple juice. So we actually switched what kind of apple juice we give our kids. My son drinks two cups of apple juice every single day. It's probably not wow. very healthy, but he does, <laughs> right? And uh, so we switched to uh, apples from U.S., apple juice from U.S. apples. And it's usually the store brand, mm -hmm. not from concentrate, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that, – so I, I asked earlier what sort of, you know – lifestyle changes you've made uh, as a result of the clothing. Um, anything else besides the apple juice for, for the eating? For food, um, yeah, we have we at times bought more organic food than, than others. Kind of depends as we look at our family budget if we want to go that route. Um, um, you know, f I think I feel like I've eaten less fast food at times, but I'm not perfect. These are all like baby steps. Uh, I think we're much more conscious of what we buy. We started a garden. I feel like it's important that our kids know that food comes from dirt. Mm -hmm. and I think that a lot of people don't know that now, you know, and yeah. have never experienced the miracle of putting a seed in the ground and it producing uh, something. Edibles. So is this, is this your first time at gardening? So we've been doing it for a couple of years okay. now. Um, and I mean, you know, we had a lot of tomatoes this year that we didn't get picked, you know, like, <laughs> so uh, we're not the best gardeners by any means, but we've taken that step um so yeah i think that's different ways that we've changed or the, uh, these experiences have influenced our lives yeah so so coffee chocolate uh apple juice bananas um there's a, a you know food group that's kind of obviously missing there what about what about meats um, oh. the, the global fishing industry has gotten a lot of attention as being problematic and of course you know industrial animal yeah. farming also yeah, so I, I did touch on one area so i actually left an item okay, out sorry. about fish <laughs> I, I didn't say it uh and cliff you'll probably find this interesting because it was in nicaragua i went to hang out with the lobster divers in nicaragua oh yes yes uh, yes in uh, puerto cabezas mm -hmm. um and so they uh, are untrained uh, indigenous divers and, who are going deeper and deeper in search of a declining population of lobster. And it's been called an underwater genocide. Like 90% of them have had some type of decompression sickness, like the bins. Wow. And yeah. uh, it is, and that, to me, that of all the things I've written about, that was one of the most uh, hopeless, depressing ones. There was no, because it's a declining resource, there's no other opportunities other than the drug industry like the drug running where people, right. you know, mm -hmm. drug runners throw the drugs overboard, they wash up on shore, people like, yeah, I'm buying a truck and building a house, you know. Um, and uh, there's just not a lot of other things for folks to do. So if you end that industry, people, what are they going to do? Yeah. If it continues, eventually it's just going to end on its own because there's not going to be any more lobster. So 
Um, so I did look at, because we way overfish, yes. like pretty much like everything, like, we're, you know, in our own waters too, the United States, not we're just wagging our fingers at other countries. Right. Um, but yeah, we're, as, as much as we're getting closer to our food, the farmer's markets and mm -hmm. back to the land kind of stuff, um, the, the global food market is, global food chain is expanding where 85% of seafood comes from somewhere else, 50% yeah. of fruit, 25% of vegetables. We import twice as much food now as we did 10 years ago, so. Yeah. Our, our diets are becoming more global. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There have been, I've seen reports on truly slavery conditions for like fish, people in the fishing industry and stuff in Southeast Asia. It's I mean, really some terrible stuff. Some of that goes into animal feed. Um, actually, it's not necessarily the, the top level stuff, but nevertheless, um, you know, consumed in the U.S. In, in some fashion or another. Yeah. And so your most recent book, Where Are You Giving? Yep. Uh, where Am I Giving? Where Am I Giving? Yep. So, and I think both of my books, Where Am I Wearing and Where Am I Eating, kind of hint to this of like, we need to be more than just consumers. It's a pretty American way to look at the world of like, we're going to make the world better by shopping. Like, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to consume our way to a better world, right? Even though we're consuming at unsustainable levels, right? Um, so where am I giving kind of looks it's at... totally us. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at a world of inequality and injustice, uh, and, and I mean, the world has gotten better, like, over the last, you know, 50 years, like, in many ways. Uh, fewer people living in extreme poverty, people, millions of people, you're not dying of malaria. Right. So things have right. increased. Things, so. things have improved, there's no doubt. But once you have this awareness of the world that we live in, what are you going to do with your opportunities and privileges of our own lives? So I kind of went set out to like, what is the good person equation? Because I felt this weight of like, what do we do to make a difference in our local communities and our global communities? I wish someone could tell me you give X percent of your income locally to organizations like this and X percent to global organizations like this, yep. you volunteer this much of your time, you vote, you write a letter to the editor, you call a senator, and you are a good person, right? <laughs> like, that's all it takes. And so I kind of set out to kind of see what that equation was. So I went to Myanmar, the most generous country on the planet, according to one study. Um, I went to India to meet Gandhi's great-grandson. And were you in Myanmar? Yeah, I was. When? when oh, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, I was in there in June of last year. Okay. So it was definitely... Okay. So we have the most generous country on the planet while they have uh, an ethnic cleansing happening, right. while they have the one of the longest running, the, I think the longest running civil war. So like... And, and true, like for real is poverty. I mean, this is... I mean, there are a few people who are doing okay, but this is a country where there is a massive, massive want, yet they are the most generous. How does, how does that work? Yeah, so it was a culture of uh, giving around Theravada Buddhism, of giving alms. Um, so they measure uh, three things in the study. In the last month, have you done a random act of kindness? Have you given money? Have you volunteered? And in Myanmar, just there's this culture of giving. Now, it was funny because I'd go talk to monks about this. And, and they go out and collect every single day. I mean, that's like part of their, yeah. that's their yes. daily routine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and but they give back too, right? Mm -hmm. Like right. if you're destitute, you can show up at any monastery. They'll just take you in, yeah. feed you, give you a place to stay. Like people sometimes travel around the country doing that. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, there's this, there's this culture, but sometimes the monks would question like, well, so someone does something bad and then they try to balance their karma by doing something good and build a pagoda while you have orphans and the elderly who are sick yeah. who aren't necessarily getting uh, attention. And so there's also this really complex idea of karma where sometimes they look at people in society who are living in poverty and like, well, they earned that in a, pre you know, in a previous right. life. So they can be where they are. So sometimes that giving, what is the intention of the giving? But also I think the most important thing when we ask of how do we give over time or talent or resources is what is the outcome of that giving? Does it actually help the people we're yeah, seeking to help? Yeah, that's huge, yeah. So what have you found in terms of, of actual outcomes and the various ways of giving that you've explored? In Does it countries? really help the ones we're giving to? Well, it depends on how we're giving, right? right. Um, I, I think that uh, there's a really great movement called Effective Altruism that tries to quantify like what is, what is good, like what, is, what are these outcomes, what's the best way. And so they've done the math and they've seen that the best way to save a life is uh, uh, bed nets for malaria. And for $3,400 of bed nets from the Against Malaria Foundation equals 
one life saved. So if you are not giving money to Against Malaria Foundation, or you're not giving money for bed nets, then you are making a choice that you're doing something that's more inefficient. And they would also say give directly, giving cash directly to the poor as one of the most efficient ways to help people. Um, so I find those ideas uh, really challenging and, uh, and amazing all at once. And I think what I've come to realize that we should try to quantify our outcomes. We should be concerned about outcomes. But really all the most important ways that we give as human beings are ways that can't be measured. You know, like uh, meeting someone for coffee when on a time when they were going through a really rough time in their life or giving someone a compliment, that teacher who was like, hey, my fourth grade teacher, hey, Kelsey, you know, you're pretty good at writing. You know, she entered my thing in the writing competition. Like, it, you started to look at our lives and the world through this lens of giving, and you start to realize all the gifts that have been poured into us. And uh, I think a gift is only a gift if we pass that on to others and it continues. So as much as I delve into the hard like efficiencies of giving. I also think that there's very other, these cultural, like giving connects us to people, connects us to causes, and uh, you know, we can't lose sight of that either. Which is the theme of that. all your books, Interconnect. We're, we're, so con we're connected in so many different ways. Yeah, and then you know, what is our responsibility in that connection? Right. And how can we make the world a better place for people and planet? That's the heart of what I try to do. That's awesome. Well, I have only read Where Am I Wearing, so I'm looking forward to reading um, your other two books, especially the giving one. That sounds really, really profound and insightful. So, Kelsey, thank you for joining us today. It has been a huge pleasure to talk with you. Yes, thank you very You're much. You're listening Kelsey. to yeah, really the best it. college radio station.